Coming up next on the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. One of the board members in the museum did a book called The Fly Fisherman of Caldwell County, and he had promised one of the guys uh, that knew Capoese real well that he would uh, tell their stories. And uh, there were some people that uh, didn't make the deadlines and felt like they were left out, and he promised to do another book. He's uh, gotten up in years and really has lost, you might say, the desire to, to do the project. And so Gretchen come to me and asked me to pick it up. That was Alan Baker with the story behind his next book project, Lefty Cray, David Whitlock, and the Famous Anglers of the Southern Appalachians. Today on The Swing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Hey, how you doing today? Thanks for stopping by the show. Quick shout out to the schoolfishing.co. This is the place where you can go and check out our travel program. We've got new trips going on all year long. Today's episode is sponsored by Togan's Fly Shop, who provides superior quality products at an affordable price. An amazing resource for fly tying materials, tools, and fishing accessories. Since 2005, Togan's has been over delivering on price, service, and passion. And now you can check out that Togan's buzz for yourself. Right now, you can head over to wetflyswing.com slash tokens to get started. That's T-O-G-E-N-S. You support this podcast by clicking through that link to tokens online. Today's episode is sponsored by Daiichi Fishing Hooks, a leader in the fly fishing industry and still the world's sharpest hook. Tempered with carbon-rich steel, Daiichi offers superior penetration without compromising the hook's structural integrity. You can head over right now to wetflyswing.com slash Daiichi and check out what they have going and check out these killer hooks. That's Daiichi, D-A-I-I-C-H-I. Alan Baker is here to take us into the Fly Fishing Museum of the Southern Appalachians. We discover who some of the most famous people are of this region, why they have a drift boat in the museum, and uh, and how they're different and similar to some of the other museums around the country. Always a good episode when we touch on drift boats. So here we go. Alan Baker from flyfishingmuseum.org. How you doing, Alan? I'm doing great. Great. Uh, great to have you on here today. We're going to dig into the Fly Fishing Museum of the Southern Appalachians, and we're going to dig into the story there. You've got a new building coming. You've got a, a bunch of stuff, it sounds like, new on the horizons. But um, before we jump into that, take us back real quick on fly fishing. I always like to hear how you got into it. Let's hear your story real quick. Um, I was building a place uh, on Sugar Mountain for skiing and uh, trying to figure out what I was going to do the rest of the year up there. And uh, the guy named Joe Hendricks uh, tying flies on TV. And so I went to the uh, fly shop. It's called Jesse Brown's and uh, signed up for a class and uh, tied my first fly. Uh, came a week later to, to the class and they were so busy in there. They wanted me to teach the class. So hmm. I jumped in pretty quick on fly tying and I tied flies for the winter and then started, uh, started trout fishing that next spring is back in uh, 1981. There you go, 1981. And, and uh, how many years was that now? It's getting hard to add up, right? 81. 40-some, 40 maybe. <laughs> 42. Exactly, 42 years ago. So you got in a long time ago. and yeah, 42 years. 42 years. And then how did the— When I was growing up, yeah. I was just too poor to fly fish. I did, you know, worm bait fishing type things and uh, didn't get it when I was younger, and I wish I had. 
right, right. But still, even that, 42, I mean, that's, uh, or 42 years ago, that's still quite a while ago. So um, you've been doing it a while. And then how did the, how did the museum, uh, this museum come to be? I know you've got some new things going on this year. Um, where did that idea start? Uh, it was kind of a dare. Um, went to, to Nova Scotia, uh, fly fish for Atlantic salmon. Uh, with a friend and uh, turns out our guide was president of the salmon museum in the, on the Marguerite up there. So I, I got a week full of interesting information about the museum. We went to visit one day and, and I was pretty much uh, struck by it. Felt like we needed to do something like that in the, in the South and particularly for the Southern Appalachians. There you go. Well, first, let's start with the Atlantic salmon really quick, because that's always an interesting topic. What was that trip like? Did, were you able to hook into a few fish? Oh, tough trip. Uh, my buddy, after about an hour on Chance Pool, I hadn't even gotten a strike. He steps up, second cast, hooks a nine and a half pound Atlantic salmon. And uh, that was, unfortunately, the fish for the week. Um, I did catch some par, caught a lot of brook trout. Broke off some salmon, but uh, it was not one of those trips where uh, you can, you know, walk away and say, I caught this big fish, <laughs> but it was, it was a fun trip. Yeah. What was cool about the trip other than the, uh, you know, you had the fishing, but other than that, what was cool about the trip? The Marguerite is, uh, you know, like a place set back 200 years from civilization. You know, people there have the internet. They eat through the winter because there's no work uh, there, but uh, they do well guiding on the river is a big part of life there. I mean, everybody should live there probably, but, uh, and it's a good thing they don't. It's really a, a neat place. Right. So that's Nova Scotia. That is a cool part. And how far is that from you? Uh, what was that like from where you live, which is in North Carolina, right? To get up there. Yeah. 31 hour drive. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Did you actually take a, did you drive up there? We did. We wanted a four wheel drive up there. So I, I drove up and uh, my buddy flew into Halifax. So, and it was a good thing because they had had flooding that year and four wheel drive was essential to get to a lot of the pools. Oh, wow. I'm not totally familiar with that. Is that an area where anybody can go up and fish? Is it kind of public waters? It is public water and it's rare because most of Canada, you have to be associated with one of the hotels and, um, you know, get the permits and everything. Gotcha. Nice. Well, this is starting off good because we've got a lot of people that love swinging flies. And I'm assuming that was the tech. Was that the technique out there sitting, swinging flies all day? Yes. Yes. We used uh, salmon patterns, all the pretty flies. Um, in fact, at Chance Pool, I'd probably gone through six or eight flies before uh, Ron stepped up and caught his on a blue charm. So. Yeah. Yeah. And what was your, uh, your rods like length and all that stuff? Uh, let's see. I was using a, uh, eight weight, uh, most days I, I did go to a nine one day, but, uh, oh, and I, and I used a spay rod for the first time while I was up there. The guy brought one and, uh, we used it for about half a day and I decided I didn't like spay. It's just swinging too big a bat. It seemed like <laughs> too big bat. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Well, the cool thing is, is I'm not sure when you went up there, but since, you know, the last few, well, it's been, this was, get- when was 2010. It? Oh yeah. Yeah. So 2010. Yeah. yeah. The things have changed yeah. big time. So people are using yeah. now, you know, like 10 foot rods for spade rods, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, so yeah. it's pretty cool, but, um, nice. So basically you had this cool trip and, you know, I want to dig into a little bit today is we have the, 
what you have going with the museum. And I maybe wanted to frame this a little bit by talking about the people in your area. Maybe, maybe just describe, first of all, the area, what your museum covers, and then let's dig into more um, from there. Okay. Geographically, we consider Southern Appalachian to be from a little bit of mountains in Alabama, includes Georgia, Tennessee, North Carolina, South Carolina, not a whole lot of mountains in South Carolina, um, Kentucky, Virginia, West Virginia, and a little bit of Maryland, um, technically south of the Mason-Dixon line. And uh, we, um, you know, it takes in a lot of mountain areas, but the whole idea was to have most of the museum focus on the people and the methods of, you know, fly fishing in, in the mountains. And, uh, and we've stayed pretty close to that. We've got a couple of special exhibits. We've got a, a Ray Bergman exhibit because we've got one of his rods and one of the first editions of his book. And he's from New York, but uh, most things in the museum are geographically in that area. Okay, perfect. And so what would be the states or the cities that are a little bit north of that wouldn't be included, some of the big cities? Um, as soon as you get to Pennsylvania, we don't include that. There is a museum in Pennsylvania, so we don't want to overlap or try not to. Yeah, so you got a lot. I mean, basically, yeah, it is a lot of that part of the country. You've got a pretty big area. Um, you know, you mentioned Ray Bergman. Remind us again on his book. What was the famous book? Uh, the book's called Trout, and it was written in the, what, 1930s. Uh, he covered about 400 flies, a lot of wet flies, but some dry. And uh, he's... Uh, very well published uh, individual for um, it just happened to be that his nephew lives in the South and donated an exhibit. So we, we're lucky to have it. Perfect. Let's dig a little bit into the people. So who are some of the people? And I'm not sure if you have like a hall of fame or who the most, some of the most famous people in that area that we, would, yeah. We do have a hall of fame, but uh, the people that are really well known locally uh, that are in the museum is people like Cap Weesey. He was a, head of uh, a boys' school, and literally to feed the boys well um, a few times a month, he would go uh, fly fishing uh, for big browns and bring them in, and they would cook them up for the whole school. Um, there was the Howe brothers that lived in Brevard, and they um, had a fly shop and probably, probably one of the best equipped uh, fly shops in the area back in the, uh, after the war. And, um, they built rods and were real well known. Uh, there was an individual named Mark Cathy. He was one of the first guides in the Smokies. When the park opened, he was for hire and he would take uh, people in, find all the brook trout streams and so forth. And uh, they called him Uncle Mark. He was probably one of the earliest in our history. Uh, and there's some well-known fly tires, uh, Fred Hall um, and his wife, Aline, tied and stole flies, uh, lived in Bryson city. And, um, it was kind of a center of fly fishing activity there after the war, after world war two, they were really well known. They created a lot of flies, uh, or fly patterns, uh, and almost anything in the, in the Southeast, uh, in Appalachian were, um, uh, extensions of other fly patterns, you know, like the wolf pattern, uh, was extensively copied as, uh, uh, Fred called it the Thunderhead because of the uh, calf tail wings looked like a cloud. And we, we actually believe that Aline Hall created these more so, and Fred was the salesman of the, of the two. So, so those are some of the real 
deep history people. So Fred Hall was uh, Fred and his wife. Uh, it was Elise. Aline. Uh, oh, Aline. Yeah, Aline Hall. Yeah. So and so the Thunderhead was a uh, similar looking to like the Royal Wolf. Yes, uh, a Thunderhead is a gray body, uh, white calf tail, um, typically a woodchuck tail, um, and uh, just brown hackle, not mixed. Oh, not mixed. Gotcha. Yeah. And were you saying the Thunderhead was uh, before or after the Royal Wolf? Oh, after, of course. Gotcha. Um, okay. There are a lot of stories about it. There's uh, stories that someone over in Tennessee invented it and Fred and Aline picked it up. But, um, you know, we try to present any stories we get on things like that because nobody knows the true story in a lot of cases. That's right. And who would be some of the people in, in the area, uh, in that area, that would be maybe some some large names, like I'm just thinking a couple that I know of, I mean, like Davey Watton, right? I mean, some of these people around there, are, are those folks down in, you know, kind of in your neck of the woods and there are, are there others out there? Well, an interesting thing happened. We, uh, it, you know, we do have a hall of fame and, uh, lefty is a good example. He's from Maryland. So we claim lefty, even though he's probably in every, every museum. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, Last year, we inducted David Wooten into the Hall of Fame. Uh, we decided that uh, Southern Appalachian was too narrow for the kinds of people we hear about, particularly in modern times. So we included the Ozarks, and we call it the Southern Fly Fishing Hall of Fame. And um, uh, Dave Whitlock, of course. Um, we do different categories in the Hall of Fame. We include conservationists and uh, craftsmen, uh, communications, uh, humanities, things like casting for recovery, people that are involved in that. So we've got a pretty good program. We've been doing that seven years now, I think. Gotcha. Sounds like you know some of the other museums. I mean, there's the American Fly Fishing Museum. Are there other smaller fly fishing museums like yours around the country? Uh, yes, there's the Catskills, um, probably the most well-known. Um, the um, director, the past director, uh, gave me a lot of uh, advice when we were starting up and uh, there's the uh, fly fishing museum that the what fly fishers international has out in livingston uh, they gave me a, a lot of support when we started up uh, there's one in um, pennsylvania that was more recently started and of course uh, you know the orvis guys perk and those guys uh, started the american museum which is probably the most visited, most well-known. And there's several salmon museums like the one up there at Marguerite. Gotcha. And so Orvis started the American Fly Fishing Museum. Yeah, pretty much. Oh, good. Yeah, I didn't even know that. That's that's interesting. So that museum then, if Perk started, it hasn't been going long, that long, right? I mean, what do you know in the roughly the date when that started? It could predate him. I don't know for sure. Um, I know that it's probably, uh, you know, it's almost Smithsonian quality they've been at it a long time and they, they have invested a lot in it and they, uh, they cover fly fishing worldwide. So. Yeah. Worldwide. Right. And that's why your museum is pretty unique, right. in the fact that you have your area and it sounds like it is bigger than the, just the Southern Appalachians, right. It sounds like you guys have extended a little bit. Would you say a lot of people see it as, you know, kind of more, uh, not fully East coast, but you've got a lot of the East coast, right. Covered. Well, the way we look at it, the museum will probably remain geographically the Southern Appalachians, and it may have a few special exhibits beyond that. But the Hall of Fame we decided to expand because of the it's more modern day, and uh, most people that fly fish in the mountains also saltwater fish. So 
you know, like uh, there's people like Sarah Gardner that's been doing salt water for years off the North Carolina coast. We would think she's a candidate in the uh, scheme of things. So, yeah, gotcha. What does that process look like to become a candidate and to be accepted into the flight? Um, there's a nomination form out there on the website. Uh, we're getting ready to launch a Hall of Fame website separate uh, so that there's two ways of uh, nominating. And um, the uh, committee is now people that are already in the Hall of Fame. So it's kind of like uh, pick your brethren. And I think that's a good, appropriate way of doing it. Um, I've tried to stay out of the selection process, but I, I did plant the first seeds when we when we got started. Um, in talking to uh, Jim Crow up at uh, Catskill Museum, he says, he says, when you first start, he says, you just got to pick them and then go from there. So yeah, we... Uh, we had a first batch like that, and then uh, we've done real well since then. We have a an induction luncheon every year in Bryson City, and you know Bryson City is a small town, so we we really uh, create an event locally there when we do that. Right, right. And what does that event look like when you do that that event? Well, we do a meet and greet and a an induction uh, luncheon, and then we uh, usually do a tour of the museum. Oh, um, I, I forget. We do uh, loggers and legends the night before. We do a fundraiser at the beer beer. Okay, uh, <laughs> that's right. That's always done well. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and generally, we've been raising money for you know groups like uh, Casting Carolinas, Cast for Recovery. You know, the group give back through fly fishing. But I think this year we're going to do a fundraiser for the Hall of Fame because we need to uh, to do some things to uh, invest more. And so we're going to do a special fundraiser this year. Today's episode is sponsored by Stonefly Nets, putting quality before quantity with their handcrafted custom wood landing nets. Charleston, South Carolina native Ethan Eigelhart was bitten by the fly fishing bug in 2014 and shortly thereafter started Stonefly Nets. He now lives in the trout-rich waters of the Ozarks and handcrafts some of the sweetest wooden landing nets you'll see. I've been using these stonefly nets for quite a while now, and I'm excited to dig into another year. Ethan builds these nets custom, and you can select from four sizes and many different wood options. For Ethan, fly fishing is a memory created from a morning on a beautiful stretch of water casting a three-weight bamboo rod that his grandmother gave to his father, and then he passed to Ethan. Ethan is helping us create the same types of lasting memories every time we're on the water with these classic custom wood nets. You can head over right now to wetflyswing.com slash stonefly to check out your custom net right now. That's wetflyswing.com slash stonefly, S-T-O-N-E-F-L-Y. You support this podcast by clicking through that link to stonefly. Okay, back to the show. So Bryson City, it sounds like that's kind of a I mean, that's where the museum is. Talk about what is that city? T- take us there if we haven't been there before. What can uh, Bryson City, uh, what they're well known for is the uh, whitewater rafting there on the Nantahala, uh, Nantahala Outdoor Center, which is nearby. And um, so you got a lot of uh, people coming for kayaking and rafting there. Um, they have the uh, Smoky Mountain Railroad, the train. I think somewhere around 200,000 people come and ride that train every year. Um, you know, it's just a tourist train, but it goes through the high bridges and the mountains and, uh, particularly in the fall where they have the autumn leaves and it goes parallel to the Nantahala river for quite a distance. So, um, that's a big draw. 
And uh, of course, for the museum, you've got 200,000 possible people to come through the museum. So you've got a good crowd. And before COVID, we had peaked about uh, 18,000 visitors that year. And uh, part of our plan was to build aquariums with, uh, you know, the local native fish um, and uh, draw the families, particularly the kids. And that way uh, you draw them there and they'd see the museum as well. So um, that plan is pretty much going to come into full fruition this year when we uh, finish the new building for the museum, which is built exactly beside the aquariums we built just before COVID. So we'll have it all together here pretty soon. Right on. And that building, so what's that going to look like? What do you think the finished product? So if somebody's thinking about heading out there with the new building, what what can they expect? Um, It's on the river, uh, which is, you know, really kind of a nice part of it. Um, The uh, aquariums are a barn-shaped building. We needed the high ceilings, you know, for humidity problems and stuff. And then the um, museum part would be a log cabin look. And... uh, we had to put in a vaulted ceiling even in that building because we have a we have the first uh, drift boat, McKenzie-style drift boat, that was actually built and run in the southeast. Uh, that's kind of our you know flagship uh, uh, exhibit, and uh, we're going to raise it up above everyone and and uh, make more floor space for other things. So it really is a, a good chunk of floor space. And so um, those will be side by side with the breezeway, and uh, we hope that'll get us to the maybe twenty, thirty thousand people a year visitation. I, my understanding is the American Museum gets twenty, somewhere around twenty-two, twenty-five thousand a year, and we'd like to be in that same category if we can get there. We're close. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. So if you're close to the American Museum, you guys must be doing some things right. What's been, you know, do you attribute the uh, success to? Well, part of it's the train that <laughs> brings a lot of people yeah. in. Um, there's a lot of fly fishermen in the Southeast that you might say exhibit some pride about knowing they've got a museum and um, they show up, they come to our small Mecca in our part of the woods. Perfect. And I love the drift boat. So do you know the story behind that drift boat? I do. Uh, Gary Taylor and Wanda Taylor were uh, two guides on the boat. Um, Wanda is just world-class uh, angler herself. And uh, I don't think they team up anymore, but uh, uh, Gary had the boat and uh, we spent about a year talking him out of it. <laughs> he was still using it when we started the museum. And uh, so we helped uh, helped him purchase a, a new boat and uh, brought it to Bryson. Well, we brought it to Cherokee originally because we started there. Right. So yeah. And Wanda Taylor, and we actually had Wanda on way back in, uh, episode 172 before, um, yeah, back in 2020. And, uh, yeah, so I, we know Wanda for sure. And then, and, but the boat, so the boat was used, you said this was one of the first, uh, so this was, yeah. Yes. Uh, there was actually four guides that started drift boat, uh, fishing in the Southeast and, uh, or in, in the Southern Appalachian mountains. Um, Theo Copeland was one of them. The actual first person was Ronnie Hall, and he still guides. Uh, I think he's with Fishhawk in uh, Georgia. He started with John Boat, I think, and uh, actually had a drift boat for a while, but it wasn't in existence anymore for us to get. And uh, Gary Taylor was the second uh, person to start, 
and uh, he was still operating that drift boat. Kevin Howe ran uh, drift uh, boats down the French Broad, and he was like third, I think, and Theo was fourth with the, um, Theo might have been third, um, on the Watauga River in Tennessee. Those four guys started it, yeah. Yeah, they started, and that was, so in what year was that when the first drift boats? That was back in the 80s. Yeah, so before that, before the 1980s, there weren't any many drift boats out there. If they were, we didn't know about them, or if they did, they didn't fly fish. Oh, there you go. Right. So, so yep. that's basically it. There were no drift boats out. Yep. And do you think? Why do you think that was that it took until 1980 to get drift boats out there? Um, for one thing, our river's uh, pretty shallow, rocky bottom, and uh, rough on boats. And uh, the fly fishermen mostly waded. Uh, you waded small streams in the mountains. And, uh, you know, someone, you might say, got entrepreneur and decided, well, I can make a living taking people down the river. And those four happened to be the first ones. So. There you go. And now do you see, like, lots of people, lots of drift boats out there? <laughs> I was over on, on the South Holston, Tennessee, the other day, and I was, fly shop told me there are 80 registered boats on the South Holston going down just about every day. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's so a big it, number. That's a big number. <laughs> so it's just like anywhere. I mean, there's just... It's a flotilla. It's a flotilla. It's interesting because, yeah, I mean, boats are great. We had a whole mini season on drift boats, the history and things. So we're always interested in that. But yeah, it is. It is pretty interesting. And we had, in fact, like John Bond, who is a guide who is actually over in Norway now. He literally flew his drift boat over to Norway because there were no drift boats over there. And he wanted to have it on his guide program. So it seems like you could almost take, and especially with designs, you could almost take a boat anywhere these days. Yes. Do you feel, what uh, are the, what do the boats look like? Are they just your standard drift boat style? Um, McKenzie style. Yeah, McKenzie. Uh, and then, uh, you know, rafts, a lot of rafts are used because they can handle the rock bottoms a whole lot better. Oh yeah. And rafts, that, of course. That yeah. new uh, fly cast, uh, the long, narrow raft, really, really good for the smaller rivers we have. Um, Little side note: Jack uh, Jack Dennis moved from uh, Jackson Hole, sold his fly shop, and uh, he lives in Cary, North Carolina now. And we've been getting up with him, and he's still going out west and doing some uh, guiding and with his drift boat. He's left his drift boat out there, but uh, we've been looking for a drift boat here. Somebody owns that he can borrow, and uh, we're getting pretty close on that, so we can we can explore some other tail races with with Jack. There you go. Yeah, Jack's an awesome guy. We we talked yeah. to him back in episode two seventeen, and he's got a he's a, you know he's probably one of the guys behind a lot of the stuff out there in flight, including oh, Team USA, right? He's done a lot of things out there. Yes, Amy Ant, Amy's aunt, Amy's aunt. That was his. Yep, yep. There you go, Amy's aunt. Perfect. So we got so we got a Jack Dennis shout out, which is good. And um, yeah, I mean, there's a ton of questions. Well, I, let me just say on the Rogue or the McKenzie style, because for those that don't know, I think the big difference between the Rogue style and the McKenzie is that the McKenzie is like a full rocker, right? There's no flat yes. bottom in the drift boat. The Rogue was the other style drift boat, which has a little bit of a, a wider flat section, which was made for more whitewater, right? Yeah. Um, but still down there, you guys have some whitewater, but boats, are they taken? Are people actually taken full, like big whitewater with the drift boats? Oh, yes. Yeah. You know, these guys start young uh, in the East, and uh, the McKenzie style uh, is about the only one that can survive a lot of the banging up that happens down through these uh, tail races. Um, most of them start with uh, rafts. Of course, rafts have gotten a little expensive now. It's tough for a young fellow to start guiding and having to get everything, all the equipment, insurance, everything to go. So 
it's a tough business for them. Yeah, it's not easy. Guiding is definitely, I think, one of the hardest jobs out there. Um, so anything else you want to, I mean, I was thinking about the Fly Tires Guild and some other things. Anything else you want to give, make sure we don't miss here today as far as what you cover at the museum and what's going on here? Well, let's see. I can touch on things. Uh, the Fly Tires Guild was uh, meant to be a way of just literally signing up anybody and everybody that ties flies and to what degree they want to be involved in the future with the museum. And uh, we're having a few uh, what they call tires weekends uh, getting scheduled in the Southern Appalachians. Uh, uh, one of the fly shops did it over in Tennessee quite a bit. And I think we finally had one on this side of the mountain. So we, we started the tires guild and, and that's, uh, probably got, uh, I don't know, three or 400 people in it right now. I'd expect it to be over a thousand easy, uh, as we move forward. The interesting thing about having the museum in Bryson city is they, uh, you know, it's, pretty remote uh, in some ways. Um, fly fishermen like to get into a remote place like that, so it works. But um, it's on the other side of the mountain from Tennessee, and it's a long trip around the mountain or over the mountain. So we're looking um, at ways that we can make the museum more accessible. And so uh, a few years ago, I started doing what we call satellite exhibits. And uh, if I could find a space somewhere that was in the public eye, I would uh, put a few museum exhibits duplicated from the museum. And uh, we have seven of those satellites now. And we're looking seriously at uh, several over in Tennessee. And uh, for that matter, if we can get something in West Virginia or any of these states, uh, we'll do that. And uh, that way, it works two ways. Uh, someone can see part of the museum, whether they can get to Bryson City or not. It also is the perfect promotion tool for advertising the museum because you can you know, just run into it somewhere else. And uh, it's always there. So we've got, we've got one at South Mountain. We've got several in Caldwell County where I grew up. We've got some in Brevard area. Got some there in Bryson City itself. So that's one of the things we've been doing. Yeah, so satellite, so you're going to have more of these places around so people, if they're a little bit further up north, they can still connect with the museum. Absolutely. Um, the Hall of Fame is doing pretty good at getting inductions from the other states, so we're pretty diverse, um, good number of females. And In fact, Wanda was one of the first, by the way, and she is a big, uh, big advocate of the Hall of Fame and, and promotes it. Yeah. When you look at the American Museum, and I'm interested in this just because I'm trying to get a feel for it. it. Seems like there would be some cross promotional opportunities. Is that something where you are kind of working with them to help promote what you have going, or they're doing promoting you, or is it more like through the FFI? Well, uh, when we started talking about memberships and the um, reciprocal agreement on being a member of one museum, automatically gets you in the other museum, and uh, we've talked about that. But uh, so far, we've been um, just open museum. We don't charge. Uh, we just take donations and we've run really well that way. When we opened up the aquariums, we talked about having a charge to feed the fish and we, we run off donations in the aquariums too. So when the, you might say 18,000 people come through, they've been very generous, kept the doors open really well. So yeah, we have talked about stuff like that. Um, the American museum of course covers you know, saltwater and, and all kinds of fly fishing. And in our museum, 
technically doesn't do that except through special exhibits. Uh, but uh, we think we'll connect more when we open up the Hall of Fame. Yeah, that's right. I'm assuming they probably have a Hall of Fame too. Um, I don't think they do. I think Pennsylvania has one, but I don't think the, you know, that's not part of the traditions in the, the Catskills and the, I'm not sure about the Catskills, honestly. Uh, but the American Museum is, like I keep saying, it's it's Smithsonian quality. How would that be different than what you have? What do you mean by Smithsonian quality? I think if there's something historical in fly fishing anywhere in the world, they're willing to invest in it, buy it, and get it there. Um, just like the Smithsonian's done for years. Um, we have operated more off of a donation uh, method. We have a lot of great assets in the museum now, but there's someone behind that that had an open heart and wanted it there in the museum. Gotcha. That makes sense. Yeah, because yeah, acquiring a yeah, it's, it's expensive, right? Acquiring some of this stuff. Oh, you know, we're we're up there in the half to three quarter million dollars in assets, and we've only been open what five or six years. So all donations. Gotcha. Very cool. Nice. So basically, if somebody was coming there, if they were in the area or wanted to swing by, I mean, it's pretty easy. It doesn't even cost money. You can just drop by, and they're going to see some some cool, you know. Uh, relic, you know, people, information, all that. W- when is the new um, event, new building starting, opening up? Um, let's see. They're they're in the sheetrock phase right now. So I'm thinking late April. Oh, wow. We'll be moving. And I think the target is to be open by June when the tour season starts. Um, the current uh, museum, the hours are a little hazardous because uh, uh, after COVID, uh, the uh, chamber's not been able to build back uh, a staffing to to keep it open the hours we used to keep it open. And um, when we get into the new museum, we've got different contractual arrangements to run it. And it'll run probably off of a similar schedule to the aquariums then. Gotcha. And I'm just looking down. I wanted to go through to see if I knew any more names on this Hall of Fame list. And I'm not from, I'm actually, you know, at least currently, I, I don't have as much connection out east but one big name that sits up is um, is Joe Brooks, of course, right? Yes. And yes, Joe absolutely. was, um, what was his? Was he in from that area? Well, he's from the Maryland area. And um, he was, you know, uh, probably one of the early uh, big communication guys. You know, he really made fly fishing uh, a big thing and, and uh, saltwater fly fishing. And uh, that's part of the reason we decided the Hall of Fame needed to be broader. Because if you... If you looked at someone like Joe Brooks that fished in the Southern Appalachians, but he was even bigger in salt water, uh, what story do you tell? you got to tell the whole story. And uh, so the Hall of Fame uh, needed to really look at any fly fisherman from the Southern area. Yeah, exactly. We say from Texas to uh, to Delaware now. Uh-huh. Texas, Delaware, perfect. For, for the Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah. For, just for the Hall of Fame, right. Yeah. Right. So you've had a, uh, I believe a couple books, right? Is the, uh, the fly fishing, my fly fishing playbook. I think you wrote a book about the museum. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about how those books came to be and maybe if you have anything else going on out there? Yeah. Well, I was an IT guy working for Duke Energy. But, uh, we did, you know, worldwide IT operations. And uh, when I retired, my goal was to write a fly fishing book because I'd been doing it for a long time, thought I was fairly good at it. And, um, when I approached uh, Gretchen Griffith, she's my editor, um, to do this book, she says, uh, yeah, but you need to write about the museum first, you know, so um, 
in fact, she took a white paper I had done and, and literally handed me the first four chapters. And so um, I spent uh, time telling the story of uh, how we created the museum. You know, it was nothing really planned in life. It just uh, needed to be done and nobody was doing it. So I took it on. Um, so we've got that book out. And uh, of course, we sell that at the museum. Uh, and then I finally got to do my, my fly fishing book. And it was it was long. It's 31 chapters. So we made it an e-book. And um, one of the board members in the museum did a book called The Fly Fisherman of Caldwell County. And he had promised one of the guys uh, that knew Cap Weesey real well that he would uh, tell their stories. And so he uh, had a method of getting around to the old guys around, around the county that fly fished together there post-war. And uh, I think he had 28 people in there. Believe it or not, though, he calls me. I'm from Caldwell County. He says, you got to get your story in there. So, you know, we saw that book get produced. And he, uh, he did a uh, book signing. And uh, there were some people that uh, didn't make the deadlines and felt like they were left out. And he promised to do another book. And uh, he's uh, gotten up in years and really has lost, you might say, the desire to, to do the project. And so Gretchen come to me and asked me to pick it up. So uh, I'll be doing another a follow-up book for that. Uh, uh, you know, as much as I like to fly fish, I'm, piddling with uh, writing a little bit here. <laughs> right. Uh, I once had an English professor told me I was the worst writer he had ever known. So I'm proving him wrong, if nothing else. That's right. Well, that's a great yeah. thing about anything, right? <laughs> you can start off not so great and you can actually develop the skill. That's the cool thing about it, right? Like and I writing. do have a good editor. So Yeah, nice. Good. Well, I think you guys have a really clean, you know, just looking at the website, everything you have going, it's definitely was done really well. And the satellite exhibits are, are pretty cool. Like you said, you've got these other places around. I see how you're kind of connecting the dots. So if somebody wanted to go to your website, flyfishingmuseum.org, they could just pretty much hop on there, maybe set up like a road trip, right? Around the... That's right. Yeah. And yeah. then you've even got a local area info. You got lodging, restaurants, um, yeah. you know, fishing resources. I could see that being kind of cool especially if you're new to the area where you could plan your trip and maybe do some fishing events, you know, some opportunities around. What would be the places if somebody was going to be out there hitting the museum and then they also want to do some fishing, what would you tell them? How do they get started if they're new to the area? Well, an easy way, of course, go to one of the two fly shops in town. Yeah. Which ones are those? Remind us the two in, in Bryson City. It's called the, uh, uh, let's see, Smoky Mountain Fly Fishing. And uh, the other one is the Tuckasegee Fly Shop. Okay. Tuxedo House uh, has uh, locations in Waynesville and uh, Silva. Uh, they both have lots of guides uh, on staff and uh, do all the rivers around there and um, include smallmouth. Uh, it's not just trout fishing. Uh, smallmouth is a real big thing in the Southern Appalachians. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you guys have awesome awesome opportunities out there. And if they're just on their own, uh, I mean, like someone that's never fly fished, there's... Um, the heritage water, it goes right through town in Bryson city. And, uh, what is it? Uh, five bucks. You rent the equipment and go fish. Uh, you know, that's part of the North Carolina wildlife resource program. Um, practically speaking, you can go to the, the Nantahala or the Tuckasegee rivers are the largest, uh, around there. Uh, deep Creek in the Smokies is, is excellent. You got to do some hiking 
um, things like big snowbird uh, over in Robinsonville. I mean, there's so much trout stream around the museum there. You could, you know, go spend an easy week fishing different, different water every day. Um, it's the same way where I grew up over in Caldwell County. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. We ended up at Bryson City because we started in Cherokee. The tribe gave us a building to start with. And uh, we ended up a, a year later needing to move for different reasons. And uh, now we're talking about putting the, the actual home of the Hall of Fame over in Cherokee. So we'll see what happens. It's all in Swain County. Quick break for a word from our sponsor. With over 40 years of experience in coffee, the Angus Coffee team is here to serve you every step of the way, delivering excellent coffee to every single angler. They are responsibly sourced from farms using sustainable growing practices. You can rest easy knowing you are doing your part. And uh, like I've said before, they roast it and they ship it within 48 hours. 48 hours. And you know, um, I'm actually drinking coffee right now and it's super late in the evening. And I've got that thing where I can drink coffee and still sleep. Raise your hand if you're like me. But I definitely love coffee, and Angler's is the coffee that I love most. And uh, and it's no-brainer. Angler's is doing good stuff, giving back to great companies, uh, great fly fishing companies, great conservation groups. And they have probably the best coffee out there, so it's a pretty easy call. If you want to um, step it up a bit, this is it. This is a pretty easy one to do. This is like... um, this is kind of like your 1% for the planet, Angler's Coffee Style. With a blend for every taste, a dry dropper on the go, tea bag option, and a rose sampler, you know Joe and the Angler's team has you covered. This time, step up to better coffee and more impact for the fish species and causes we all love. Head over to wetflyswing.com anglers right now to get a great bag of greatness to your door. That's Anglers, A-N-G-L-E-R-S. Let's make a change today for great coffee. You know, we talked about a few people, you know, Dave Whitlock, who passed away, uh, you know, recently, and there's some other big names out there. Were there some folks that influenced you, you know, over the last 42 years in your fly fishing that are people we might know of? Yeah. Some of those names, uh, I grew up with their stories. That was influence, but uh, uh, a guy named Jim Cassida, he's in the Hall of Fame. He's a writer, uh, and uh, Don Kirk, uh, they wrote a lot of stories about fly fishing in the Smokies, and uh, eventually I got to know them. Uh, Don, especially, he we put him in the Hall of Fame last year. Um, he passed away about two weeks before we had the induction because we, you know, had to keep rescheduling because of COVID. But Don actually started his own. Hall of Fame in the South. He called it Legends of the Fly. He would actually have the inductions at the fly fishing show in Atlanta. And uh, Don thought it would upset me to compete. But I said, no, you're creating history for the museum. So um, when he passed away, one of the things I had promised him was that we would uh, recognize all of the inductees that he had put in place. And so he especially had an influence on me. And uh, uh, another guy, Jim Dean, he was the editor of Wildlife Magazine in North Carolina. And to read his stories, he had a, had a column every, uh, every issue of, of the magazine. 
20 or 30 years. Yeah, he would talk about these trout streams and not name them. They were secrets. Of course, I knew where he went and I knew the streams. (laughs) (laughs) And it was so enjoyable to, you know, read his stories and understand what he got out of fly fishing. So people like that have a big influence. And I see his son, Scott, uh, at least once a year when they they gather up around Edgemont. uh, They do an opening day, uh, pre-opening day gathering. There. They used to do bluegrass. I'm not sure what they're doing, but <laughs> hmm. they get together and huddle before they go to opening day. And yeah, opening day is kind of a tradition more than it is anything else for fly fishermen because we fish wild streams year round. Gotcha. That is great. Yeah. I mean, the influences that is, it's cool to hear. I hadn't heard of those people um, and the legends of the fly. That's really good. Do you steal the shows? Are you, do you head out to the shows and do the thing at the um, Atlanta show or any of that stuff? I've gotten a little lax since COVID, you know, kind of gotten into more uh, family things need, need to do in the last few years. My granddaughter's in high school now, but um, I used to work the fly fishing shows, several of them uh, for the museum on behalf of the museum. And I think it's paid off. Uh, you know, you, you don't run into many people in the Southeast that fly fish that don't know about the museum. Yep. That's right. No, it's really awesome. I love that you're doing it. I, that was one of the questions I kind of, I guess I've alluded to a little bit, but just, you know, it sounds like it's a lot of work, like a lot of this stuff and, you know, just thinking like, why, why do you do it? I, I could take a couple of guesses, but what keeps you going? Well, for one thing, I'm a good delegator. <laughs> I have a lot of help. Yeah. Um, what keeps me going is I'm very passionate about fly fishing. My wife is understanding and, um, you know, when you get to know people, you, I mean, literally, um, I know a lot of people in Bryson city and Bryson city is three hours from where I live, you know? So, uh, it brings people together and, uh, uh, it's just rewarding to do that. When I arrive in Bryson city, you know, people treat me like I live there, you know, and that's nice. Yep. That is nice. Nice. Well, I think uh, I'll t- we'll take it out here really quick. I want to check on, you know, just how we can help if people are listening here and they want to get involved or help with the museum. But let's do the two-minute drill really quick, and we'll take it out here with a couple of quick rant. Uh, well, one random question and a couple of easy ones for you. Does that sound good? Sure. All right. So I always like to start out with something with, um, you know, kind of a quote. And this isn't always easy because it's kind of on the spot. But Think about that. Do you have a person, a quote, or something that you kind of think about as you're, you know, working out there with the museum or in fly fishing that kind of, you know, is something that resonates with you? Uh, if you build it, they will come. <laughs> <laughs> so that's true. So that one's actually true. Absolutely. Yeah. So why do the people say that isn't true? You say if they build it, the, right, you hear that sometimes that that's actually not true. Uh, well, some people like to fish so much they just can't get out of the water to go. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah, but they will come. That's the cool thing about this is like you're saying, you're planning on having as much traffic as the American Fly Fishing Museum, right? That's pretty, uh, pretty much you agree. Uh, that's that's, built, that's yeah. to look up to and be, be proud of. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Do you listen to more music? Uh, I know you've been on at least one other podcast um, or do you listen to some podcasts out there? Uh, I'm not a big uh, listener to podcasts. Uh, I guess I'm old school, watch TV a lot. Um, the, uh, Jesse Browns does a radio show and 
I've been on the radio show quite a bit. And the good thing is they record it uh, because it plays early in the morning, like five o'clock or something like that. There you, <laughs> you go. Know, but uh, they've been a big help to promote it. And, you know, that's where I got my start. I, I started tying flies there at Jesse Brown. So, yeah. Oh, so Jesse Brown's is, is a shop? It's an outdoor shop, but they do have a fly shop section. Yep. And they're, they're downtown. They're what? South Charlotte. Oh, good. Okay. Yeah. Jesse Brown's perfect. We'll get a link out to that one as well. What is your, um, so thinking about, you know, I'm not, sounds like, you know, that area pretty well. Do you have another trip, big trip you're looking at doing in the future that you'd love to get out to, whether that's, you know, more Atlantic salmon or anything like that? Um, well, uh, what I I really long to do is come down here and fish for redfish at, um, in Georgetown at Winyon Bay. Um, haven't planned any big trips lately. We're at a point where granddaughters starting to look at colleges and uh, we've been going to the ball games and all that every, every week. And uh, we hadn't planned it. We just getting our passports renewed uh, and coming out of COVID you might say. So um, Jack has uh, invited us to come out and float for a week and, when he does his uh, 60 days out there. So we might, we might join him and do that. Huh. What are his 60 days? He said, uh, uh, his wife and, and he agreed that he could go down the river 60 days while he's out there. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that's awesome. 60 days. I in mean, a row. He, moved, he moved to the Carolinas to be with the grandkids and all that, but he's having a hard time weaning his, uh, Western roots, his Western know? roots. There you go. That's interesting. I remember him talking about that when he mentioned that he was, I think he had just moved out there and he was talking about why, you know, he did it for the kids. And I, you know, I said that at the time, like that says a lot about the person, right? That he's willing to leave what he's always loved his life to be with the family, right? To be, that's, you know, pretty powerful. It sounds like that's the community that is out in that part, like North Carolina, that part of the country. Do you feel like it's a very family oriented uh, place to live? Yes, very much, very much. Yeah. What do you think makes it? Why do you think that is? Just uh, It's just kind of that uh, Southern hospitality and the people are so... Well, it yeah. used to be Southern hospitality, but we've got so many people that's moved down from the North. It's a real mix now. Right, right. So <laughs> the good and the bad. Horns. You're getting both. They, get... <laughs> they blow horns at each other a lot more than they used to. Oh, really? Oh, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's no good. But uh, yeah, you know, Jack's... Uh, uh, one little quickie story. Yeah. Uh, the first time I went out West, I went into his fly shop, uh, there in Jackson hole and, uh, we were tying, uh, Henry Fort hoppers and, uh, elk hair caddis, stuff like that. And he says, uh, he says, let me, let me show you something. And he took me to the back and he gave me a patch of bleached elk hair. And back then it was just not well known that you could take elk hair and lighten it up like that and not make it real brittle. And he gave me a patch of that elk hair, you know, didn't charge me for it or anything. And I remember that to this day, you know, you go out there and a guy in the fly shop just is nice, you know, uh, give you on a good, good uh, hint and move you forward. So we've talked about that story a few times since. That's it. That's what it's all about. I've heard a lot of those stories now over the years of the, you hear sometimes those stories and those shops are usually around or those people then you hear the other stories about the people that weren't so friendly and almost always that those shops are never around. Right. It's, it's, that, yeah, yeah, that's right. They'll, they'll eventually fall. You know, the whole museum is about making sure those stories are there and it's difficult at times because, you know, people pass away and other people don't remember them and things like that. But if you can capture those, that's the essence of, of what it's all about. Yeah. And that's what was exciting for me about doing this episode when, 
when we first talked is that, you know, obviously that's what we're all about here is telling the stories, right? And teaching and, and helping people, but also the stories. That is, so for me to talk to you and you dedicated a chunk of your life to telling stories from all the people out there, it's pretty amazing. And I haven't actually been specifically to that area. So it's one of those things that's exciting for me too, because it gives me an opportunity eventually to get out there, check out the museum and, um, and this is good. Well, so what can people do if they're listening right now and they want to help out, you know, or join or connect? What would you tell them? What's their one thing they could do today? Pass the word. Talk about it. People know about it. Um, you know, we certainly get enough uh, people visiting North Carolina and, and we like our trout streams without them, but uh, they're welcome. They can come and, uh, and fish with us. Perfect. All right. Well, we'll help uh, get the word out and hopefully we'll send a few people out to the new place this summer. And, uh, and if we can get out there, I'll definitely stop by and say hi as well. And then it's uh, flyfishingmuseum.org, right? Yes. That's it. Perfect, Alan. Well, I think we'll leave it there. We've got a bunch of other things uh, I could touch base on, but I think we'll leave that until the next one we get you on. Maybe we'll do an, uh, an update episode down the line to see how things are going with the new place. And uh, yeah, yeah, until we great. talk again, uh, appreciate all your time. Sure. Enjoy it. There it is. Wetflyswing.com slash 442. 442, if you want to check out that drift boat, uh, take a look at a few of the photos of what this museum looks like inside and uh, and just get some links out to what we talked about today. I mentioned the schooloffishing.co. That's schooloffishing.co. You can find out where we're heading next on our travel program. Uh, which giveaways are coming up next. And also we have an ambassadors program. So if you want to find out more about this and find out how you can get involved, some of these trips that we have going with the school, that's the easiest way you can check out anytime. Schooloffishing.co. Quick listener shout out before we get out of here. Reagan Kenyon has been checking in with us on email. And uh, the last one he sent, he mentioned... uh, he said, uh, Dave, doing a great job, great episodes. Was listening to the Tim Flagler talk on Trout Spay. Uh, he says, you should try to get Jeff from Pureway Rods on. He's definitely on the cutting edge of Trout uh, Spay um, and all the good stuff with Jerry French. And yes, that is a good one. I think we may have noted this in the past, but uh, we have Jeff Pureway. We're going to get him on, and he is going to be involved in one of the upcoming uh, events we're doing. So excited to uh, deliver that one for you, Reagan. And thanks again for all the emails. Really appreciate you checking in. I know you sent one, uh, another follow-up with some uh, guests uh, that I'm going to have on. And one of those guys I'm just checking out, another one you mentioned here, uh, was Greg Liu. Looks really interesting up on the Salmon River. So we're going to work on that. If you're listening now and you want to get a shout-out on this podcast episode like Reagan, uh, you can reach out to me, Dave, at Wetfly Swing anytime. Just let me know if you haven't checked in uh, for a while or if you're new to the show easy way to send me an email or check in on social and just let me know um, that you're listening to the show. Always love to hear from uh, people that are out there. Okay, you want to take a quick look at where we are heading next? We are heading, where are we heading next? Man, next week we got another great week. Uh, we got a DIY Europe fishing trip. Uh, this is a really fun one. We got uh, somebody who's traveling around a camper and we get his perspective on fly fishing Europe. Um, We've got Steve Potter on, um, who's going to dig into some on his fly tying. We're going to touch on uh, Daiichi. And later that week, we've got the Great Lakes Dude podcast number two. Jeff Liskay coming at you. This is going to be a steelhead episode focused. And uh, and I can't wait to get that one out as well and listen to that next week. So we're we're jamming along. We've got a full uh, schedule on the docket. 
And uh, and what have I been doing lately? I listened to, recently listened to um, a documentary. You might want to check this out if you're a Beatles fan. I, I think it came out a couple years ago, but it's uh, it's called Get Back, Get Back, and it's a, a story of how they put together that. Uh, you've probably seen it, the Beatles, if you know them, that rooftop, um, that rooftop concert. Um, and I would love to put this. Actually, I probably will. I'm going to put this in the uh, in the show notes just so you hear it because I've been listening and uh, and get back. One of the songs from that, probably get back. They had a couple of good ones. We'll have that video in the show notes. All right, I'm going to get out of here. I hope you are having a good morning, a good afternoon, or a good evening wherever you are in the world. And I appreciate you for stopping in today, checking out the show. And if you get a chance to share out there, um, I would appreciate that as well. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.